to 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. 2 Samuel 11, we continue our series. Uh, It will be interrupted over the next few weeks due to different circumstances. Uh, Pastor Stephen will be preaching next week on evangelism as we focus on that as a church family um, through the summer. Uh, Then we'll come back and look at 2 Samuel 12, and then the following week we'll have one of our missionaries with us. Um, So we'll continue with our series. It might be a little bit interrupted, but that's just fine. Um, We'll look at that as God's providence for us. At 11.57 a.m. on June 5th, 1976, 80 billion gallons of water began surging forward in a torrent of destruction. The massive earthen dam, uh, Teton Dam in Idaho, collapsed without warning, sending these billions of gallons of water surging into the Snake River Basin and into the towns of Hibbert and Rexburg. It had taken almost four years to build this dam and only a few hours for it to collapse. The dam, when completed, was 305 feet tall. And rushing like a 10-foot tidal wave, it took the lives of 11 people, ripped topsoil from over 100,000 acres of fertile farmland, drowned 13,000 head of cattle, and destroyed thousands upon thousands of homes. Now, in all, it caused over a billion dollars worth of damage almost 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago. Everyone was shocked. How could this happen so quickly? Such devastation, such power. But did it happen suddenly? The answer is no. Beneath the waterline, a hidden fault had been gradually weakening that entire dam. It started small enough, just a tiny bit of erosion. But by the time it was detected, it was too late. The workers on the dam themselves barely had time to run for their lives to escape from being swept away by this flood. No one saw the little flaw, and no one at the time got hurt by it. But everyone saw the big collapse, and many lives were ruined and devastated and even lost. Moral failure is a lot like that. Sin begins with tiny things sown at an earlier point in time. Little things, little attitudes, little habits. Maybe some casual actions on a, on a date. Maybe some pornography that falls into your hands unexpectedly. Maybe a fascination with some sensuality in books or articles you're reading. Little things. Yet if you don't crucify them, If you don't bring them to judgment, if you don't put them away, if you don't face up to them as what they are, sin, they can destroy you. They can blur your moral judgment at a critical, irreversible junction in your life. As we've looked at the story of David, the first ten chapters, rather, of 2 Samuel have presented him as a wonderful, godly king, a gift To God's people Israel. But we've seen just little snippets. Little glimpses. Little erosion of the dam perhaps. In David's life. He has a completely unbiblical view of a relationship with women. 
up to this point in his life, we know that he has had at least eight wives. And we'll learn from later chapters in 2 Samuel, he also has at least ten concubines. In direct disobedience to Deuteronomy 17, David had multiplied wives. He went along with the customs of his day rather than being resolved to honor and obey God. And these cracks are breaking open now in 2 Samuel 11. The question for each of us today is where are we allowing or justifying a tolerance to sin? Because it's, it's common. It's common in our culture, even common among God's people. Are we paving pathways in our hearts that will lead to catastrophe later? And the ultimate question then is, what will you do if you recognize that to be true in your heart this morning? Let's begin looking at our text together by reading verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. This is God's word to us, his people. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's ask for God's help as we consider this text together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sobering warning it will give us this morning. Help us to be humbled. Help us to be honest. Help us to recognize the help that you seek to give even in the conviction of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning will teach us that no matter how you attempt to cover your sin, God sees. This passage is challenging for us this morning in a couple of ways. First, it is very familiar to us. So there's much potential for us to minimize what's happening in the text from seeing the full weight of what God's Spirit wants to teach us here. Second, the passage, again, does not answer all the questions we might have. There's lots of things that are raised in this passage. It doesn't answer all of our questions about the supporting characters at all. What role does Bathsheba play? What role does Joab play? What culpability does he have? What does Uriah actually know? The text doesn't answer those things. That's not its purpose. Its focus is almost solely on David. He initiates and leads all of the action. The narrator wants us to see the depths of his depravity. He wants, us to, he wants to shock us, to awaken us, to enliven our spiritual senses with stark and abrupt descriptions of his actions. In the path of this narrative story so far, this is disturbing and surprising and unexpected, and that's its value. It's to wake us up 
This morning, we follow the story of David's sin through four points. First, David's terribly foolish choice. Now, remember in chapter 10, Abishai had defeated the Ammonite army. In chapter 10, remember, Joab and Abishai were caught in this pincer movement of two armies, and they both overthrew them. Abishai defeated the Ammonite army, and they ran back into their city, Rabbah. Israel had gone home to rest during the winter months when it wasn't safe or wise to be fighting. And now the spring has arrived. And it's time to go back and finish this conflict. The war with the Ammonites provide the historical setting of this passage. And we don't learn of its final resolution until the end of chapter 12. Now as we read, what are we to make of the remark from the narrator that this was the time that kings go out to war? In messages that I've heard before, much has been made of that. Potentially that's, that's the right thing to do. Is David failing somehow in his duty? Is he wrong in staying at home? Well, we saw in chapter 10 that he was not. He sent Joab. So we've seen him before do this. But is it wrong here? One commentator states, As I think of what happened of this, I am sure that it did not happen all at once, this fall of David. This matter of Bathsheba was simply the climax of something that had been going on in his life for 20 years. And I think part of what we're seeing by the narrator is this, this is being evidenced in David's inaction. His passivity. His laying on his couch while all Israel is out fighting. Risking their lives for the nation. Staying home from the battle merely provided an opportunity for the long-standing lack of sexual restraint and indulgence of passion to display itself. Now just think of it. David's many wives have not satisfied his lust. This teaches us an important lesson. It's because you can't satisfy lusts of the flesh. You can never fill them all the way up. There are primarily rebellious assertions of self They're saying, I want, and I want, and I want. It wasn't so much that David just wanted Bathsheba. It's that he's not satisfied what God had given him. Nathan will make this point in the next chapter. This principle is going to be illustrated in a more exaggerated way than next person in Solomon's life, David's son. Solomon has even more wives and more concubines, a thousand in number. And here's what they show us. David and Solomon show us that if one woman isn't enough, a thousand women aren't enough. Sexual passion is not like hunger. So that when you feed it, that hunger goes away. Rather, it's like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it rages. The solution then can never be indulgence but rather learning to obey God through the temptation. Avoid the temptation. Don't even start giving into it. Solomon says in more than one place, as a man who's experienced this by failure, that the eyes of man are never satisfied. This isn't just the nature of sexual sin. This is the nature of all of our sin. Now Bathsheba's great beauty made the sight tempting, But the real strength of the temptation does not lie in the quality of the tempting object, but in the state of heart and mind. 
You know what that means? It doesn't have to be the perfect conditions for you to fall into sin. You need to be aware of the sinfulness of your heart. This is what Jesus states clearly in Mark 7, 21 and following. He says, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Not one of us sins because the temptation is just too prevalent or too strong. We're drawn away of our own lusts, our own desires, and enticed. We will have what we want. In verse 3, we read that David learned that the woman came from a notable family. She was from the upper classes. He knew her family well. We don't know that until we study the text a little bit more. Her father, Eliam, was one of David's mighty men, according to 2 Samuel 23. Her grandfather was Ahithophel, one of David's chief counselors. But David also learned that Bathsheba was married and the wife of another one of David's mighty men. It says in 2 Samuel 23 that he was one of the 30. This is the elite special forces of Israel. These are men who have pledged their lives to Israel, to David, and to God. It's very likely David has fought side by side with this man. But he also learned that this woman's husband was away because those mighty men were in battle. And this knowledge made the situation far more tempting. David begins to think, I could get away with this. Although a Hittite, Uriah, or his family at some time had embraced Israel's God. This is a friend, a fellow believer or follower of Yahweh. His name is Hebrew. It means the Lord is my light. Consider the depth of betrayal that the narrator is pointing out. This man is David's friend. A faithful fellow soldier. Not just a fellow image bearer, a fellow Israelite. Bathsheba in this text is only referred to by name once. The rest of the time, the narrator calls her the wife of Uriah. He's pointing out this betrayal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the observation that when lust takes control, at this moment, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of him. That's really important to recognize. When we fall into our sin, God disappears from our view. This is true with every sin we commit, whether it's lust or worry or gossip or anger. The deceitfulness of sin blinds us from seeing him. In this way, sin makes you stupid. This is so true of David in this chapter. And the stark contrast of how David had been seeing and honoring and worshiping and following God to what we see of him here, it's just staggering. Now, David should have received the news of this woman's identity as a warning. Things should have stopped right here. This woman has a husband 
He learned that this woman was related to men close to him, men he had relationships with. In taking Bathsheba, David sins against Uriah, Eliam, and Ahithophel. And in this way, he ignored every warning and way of escape that God had set before him. The mind controlled by lust has an infinite capacity for rationalization. Have you experienced that yourself? You say, it's not that big a deal. Nobody will know. It's not hurting anybody else. How often we say these foolish things to ourselves. So we read that David took her and he lay with her. Someone who did not belong to him. At this moment, David's agreeing with the world's understanding of the purpose of sex. It's belittling it. It's minimizing it. It's degrading it. It sees it as primarily the pursuit of a pleasurable, self-centered experience. This is for me and only me. And I don't care what happens to anybody else. Notice the text doesn't say anything about David's feelings for her. He doesn't woo her. He doesn't speak to her at all as recorded by the narrator. She's just an object to be won. With his many wives, David betrays God's purpose for sex to be the cement that helps bond together a one flesh relationship to physically demonstrate commitment to one's marriage covenant. If you don't understand this, the world's ideas of sex will totally overwhelm you. Sex is meant by God to bring together a covenant commitment, to seal it, to renew it. R. Kent Hughes writes, sensuality is easily the biggest obstacle to godliness among men today. And it is wreaking havoc in the church. He says, godliness and sensuality are mutually exclusive. And those in the grasp of sensuality can never rise to godliness when in its sweaty grip. Is lust and sensuality presenting a roadblock for your growth in godliness? Now, what is the purpose of the parenthetical addition in verse 4? Why does it tell us about her purifying herself from her uncleanness? Well, the point for the narrator is this confirms that Bathsheba was not already pregnant when David committed adultery with her. The child that will come is David's. Now, David wouldn't have known this, and it sets up what will come next. So let's continue our reading now in verse 6. David gets the word that she's pregnant. He could have turned, but instead we read, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. 
Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he, Uriah, went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Secondly, we see David's pathetic attempts at concealment. Verse 5 ends with this bombshell announcement. David has an opportunity to turn, but he decides to double down and digs in further. And David now does what most unrepentant sinners do. He tries to hide his sin. In this section, he tries twice. Two pathetic attempts. Now the whole concept of hiding our sin is further deception. Our sin is never hidden before God. Just because we can hide it maybe from somebody else, bury it in our own hearts and minds, doesn't mean it's hidden. That's another lie we tell ourselves. The real question for us all is, are we prepared to face our sin and deal with it or just keep rationalizing it and pushing it aside? The answer to hidden sin is confession and repentance. As soon as we're conscious of sin, the right thing is not to begin to reason with it or to wait until we've brought ourselves into a proper state of heart about it, but to go at once and confess the transgression unto the Lord then and there. The phrase we see, go down to your house and wash your feet, it's an implicit command by the king to go home and go to bed with your wife. Go find comfort there. It's as if the commander-in-chief is giving him a weekend military pass that he didn't request. And yet these verses show Uriah as a man of great integrity. He's willing to sacrifice his own desire, his own ease, his own comforts, what he could say were his own rights. He did not want to enjoy the comforts of home while his fellow soldiers endured hardship on the field of battle. Notice what he says in 11 again. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. He concludes, as you live, David, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. For an Israelite soldier, war was theological. They would abstain from the normal comforts of home while the battle's being fought in devotion to Yahweh. They're saying, we'll, we'll sacrifice that to give ourselves to God and fight for him and his people. Uriah is demonstrating covenant faithfulness here. This should have provided David with yet another prick of his conscience. This is normally what we've seen of David. But David had expected and hoped Uriah would prove to be like himself. Instead, he proved himself to be a man of integrity whose first loyalty was to his God. Notice how it points out the ark is there. He's loyal to his king's interests rather than to his own pleasures. When David's first attempt to conceal his sin is foiled by Uriah's faithfulness, David seeks another more desperate strategy and he gets him drunk. And what we see is that in this case, Uriah is more faithful drunk than when David is when he's sober. We continue our passage and see David in his desperation in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. 
that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David fell, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your tack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Thirdly, we see David's seemingly successful attempt at concealment. Now, having failed to cover his sin through these first two attempts, David wants Uriah dead. He amazingly sends a death warrant by the hand of Uriah. David trusted the integrity of Uriah so much that he made him the unwitting messenger of his own death sentence. The irony is staggering here. All Uriah had to do was open the letter. Somehow David's not even afraid of that. One author then concludes this was the sum of treachery and villainy. He made this most noble man the carrier of letters which prescribed the mode in which he was to be murdered. Joab is to carry out David's wicked plan for murder. And Joab must have known or at least suspected the reason behind this very stupid military decision. He knows David knows better. He says as much in what he tells the messenger. The depths of David's blindness is revealed, though, in his last statement to Joab. Did you notice it? Did you notice the callousness of David's heart in verse 25? Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. This happens. David, God's chosen king, who's given the throne for protection and defense of God's people, for the glory of his God, is now using them as pawns and casually speaking of their deaths as insignificant. Do you see how blind and stupid sin has made God's king? Just think of all the families in Israel who are mourning the loss of husbands and fathers and sons because David wants to cover up this adultery. He's gone this far. If not immediately confronted, one sin can take such a wretched course. David indulged his sensual lust for years. He ignored God's warnings and ways of escape. He allowed temptation to turn into lust, lust into adultery, when the consequences of that adultery is threatening to expose him. He covers it first with deception and then murder. 
And notice, Satan could never have tempted David with the entire package at once. But he deceives him with it piece by piece. One commentator summarizes in the attempt to maintain a sanitized facade and avoid public exposure, the guilty are prepared to add sin to sin, layer upon layer, and so become ever more deeply enslaved to their wickedness. Let's see the conclusion now in verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over him, over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Verses 26 and the first part of 27 provide really a tidy little summary of the event from David's perspective. The wife of Uriah appropriately mourns the loss of her husband, the designated amount of time. And when that time of mourning is fulfilled, David's now free to take her as his wife, to cover up her pregnancy, and they have a child. All seems resolved. And in a way, if we stop there, we're shocked that God is absent from the story. How is this happening? But the narrator is driving us to this point made at the end of verse 27. Is all resolved? The second half of verse 27 is the first mention of God and only mention of God in the chapter. The Hebrew can be translated, the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. He sees. Now, did you notice the repetition of that word displease in verses 25 and 27? Do you know what the narrator's doing there with that? He's contrasting that David was not displeased by what it took to cover his sin with how God views it. God witnessed every event. He read the intent of David's heart. His displeasure was only implied up until this very specific statement here at the end of 27. God had seen everything. He knew every evil thought. David may have been relieved in the moment. There'd been no public exposure of his sin. There'd been no public scandal. They had a baby. There was good logical reasons for why they had the baby. But if he thought that this was the end of the matter, he's sorely, sorely mistaken. Nothing's hidden from the Lord. Nor was David free from the guilt of his own conscience. Now, I want us to ask in conclusion, as we begin to think of application specifically, why is this account recorded for us? I mean, in a lot of ways, I could have done without knowing about this. Why do we need to know this incredibly disgusting abuse of power, sexual sin, murder, betrayal, treachery, evil at the highest level. Why are we told this about Israel's greatest king? What does the Spirit want us to see from revealing David in his great folly? We're to see the nature of our hearts. This is a mirror. This passage isn't judging David today. It's judging us. It's showing us ourselves 
we're to see the nature of our own hearts here. G. Campbell Morgan writes in the whole of the Old Testament literature, there's no chapter more tragic or full of solemn and searching warning than this. A text like this humbles us. And yet, and yet, it provides us with great hope and greater faith in Christ. Why is the passage here? It leads us to long with greater spiritual desperation For David's greater son, for the king who will be faithful to obey, who will endure far greater direct temptation from Satan himself than what David caves into here. We need the greater savior king because we're just like David. If this is how the godly David, author of so many God-centered psalms, falls into the pit and self-deception of sin, then we must realize this is us. This is our hearts as well. The text tells us how badly, how desperately we need Christ. So the passage teaches us, no matter how you attempt to cover your sin, God sees. Hear this warning as a blessing from God. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, notice the superlatives, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Solomon says very similarly in Proverbs 5, for a man's ways are before, are in front of the Lord's eyes. He considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He'll become entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. We'll see the consequences and death that results from David's sin in the following chapters. Really, much of the rest of this book is about the decline of David. The results of this action. But hear the message from chapter 11. God knows the depths of depravity in each of our hearts. This is left here as a memorial, as a warning, as a call to turn. You can't hide your sin from him. Even if it seems like he's not paying attention at the moment. Even if it seems like you're getting uh, away with it. Even if it seems like you're living in the first part of of verse 26. The first half of verse 27. Nobody else knows. He Now, there are at least two lessons that stand out from this text. First, don't be surprised by the depths of sin. Be fearfully sobered. This is a fearful passage in a way, isn't it? Because of the surprise, the unexpected nature of what we see in David, it's shocking. But don't be surprised to see even a godly man like David fall prey to sin. Why are we shocked? Because we don't believe what the Bible says about our hearts. About its depravity, its sickness, its desperate condition. There's no man or woman beyond any sin. And this is an illustration of that. The Holy Spirit provides this sobering warning here for us because we must awaken to the reality, the severity, the depths, the potential danger of sin residing within our hearts. Some of you hearing me right now are recognizing what is happening in your own life by your own sinful choices. And God is calling you to turn. 
The passage also demonstrates for us, again, our hope is not in men, not even the best of men. It's not in the right political candidate or the most upright of spiritual leaderships. Don't be shocked or dismayed when godly men fall. They're men. Think of it. David's the best of men, perhaps in the entire Old Testament, by what we see of him, what God has said of him, what God has promised him in chapter 7. And yet in this passage, he falls so fast, so frighteningly, when he's deceived by the sinfulness of his own heart. Paul Tripp, I think, has wisely said, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. So don't be surprised when you see even godly men fall into sin, but grasp this personally as well. Don't underestimate your own ability to fall into sin. Let this be as smelling salts in your nostrils. Men, wake up to the dangers of sensuality. Don't play with it. Believer, recognize your own capacity for self-deception. Hear the warnings of Scripture. Jeremiah 17, 9, we know this well. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's so deep and dark. The writer says we can't even understand it ourselves. In one particular Peanuts comic strip, Lucy says to Linus, you can't subtract six out of four. And Linus says... You can if you're stupid. Now this kind of fits the passage, doesn't it? David thinks he can get away with this. The passage is troubling to us because we never would have conceived David as being capable of this depth of wickedness. But that's the point. You may say in your own mind, I would never fall like this. But we only say that if we're being stupid. Paul warns us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Your heart has an almost infinite capacity for self-deception. You need other people. You need God's word. Have you ever considered how many times in scripture we are commanded not to be deceived or more accurately, self-deceived? Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. That's a pretty common understanding of farming, right? So why does Paul have to say, don't be deceived? Because that's our tendency. That's the danger lurking in every heart. The deception is we say, God's not there. He's disappeared. In a prayer entitled, Yet I Sin in the Valley of Vision, The author provides a model prayer for us this morning. He writes, Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to thee. Break it, wound it, bend it, mold it. Unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. The second lesson, don't be stubborn in your own sin. Humbly turn back to him. 
Consider how many times in this text David could and should have stopped himself and repented. How many times there should have been this pricking in his conscience and he stubbornly ignores it. In verse 5, Bathsheba tells him, I am pregnant. He should have fallen on his face before God and repented. Even before then, he hears from a servant. She's the wife of another man. He's already lusted for her in his heart, committed adultery in his heart. He should have stopped himself from going forward then. Uriah says to him, the ark, the armies of Israel are in the field. He should have recognized in that man's statements, the man he sinned against, his faithfulness should have caused him to fall on his face before God. When his feeble attempts to cover his sin fail and fail and fail, he should have turned. But he did not. Our hearts are deceptive. So think of how many times when you've given in to sin, your conscience has stung you and you did not turn. If we're not continually aware of our own propensity to sin, we won't be on guard against it. Perhaps the Spirit has pointed at an area that you are allowing to fester. You're being given an opportunity to turn this morning. Will you? What are you truly risking by holding on to that sin? What dangers, what catastrophe will happen when that dam breaks? Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive mercy. A text like this cries out for us to look at David's greater son, for that mercy to place our confidence in him rather than our willpower, our self-discipline, our spiritual resolve. Certainly we must discipline ourselves for godliness, but it's not ultimately just up to us and our efforts. Our hearts should cry in response to a text like this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If you're in need of help or accountability in some area of sin in your life, can I urge you to talk to a friend, a fellow member, one of the pastors, and do it today. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You should find no perfect Christians here. We should all be eager to help each other. We should not be surprised when someone comes to us and confesses a sin and need of help. We must all continually point each other back to Christ. So turn to him this morning. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 encourage us. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That prayer from the Valley of Vision concludes, all these sins I mourn, lament, and, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. This is how we honor our Christ, through repentance, through humility, through dependence. Let's ask for his grace. Our Father in heaven, 
we come before you confessing that we 